Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the InfraDig podcast, the podcast brought to you by IJ Global, Infrastructure Journal. Now, this one is being recorded at our REF Wall Street conference, which we host in partnership with our sister title, Power Finance and Risk. At this event, we've been looking at renewable energy across the US, and it's been a lively day so far. We're now in the second day of it, um, the day when it wraps up. I have with me a very interesting uh, person to have a chat with about renewables in the US, and actually just renewables point blank. I have Charles Donovan here with me. Charles, welcome to InfraDig. Thank you. My pleasure. Great to have you here. Charles, uh, for the benefit of the listener, can you please just sort of um, briefly tell the world about yourself and sure. what you do? So I'm a professor of practice uh, mm-hmm. of sustainable finance at the University of Washington in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I've been in academia for about 10 years, uh, but have uh, a background in the power sector. So mm-hmm. working for BP and its alternative energy business, uh, have Enron in my background, which came <laughs> up in the panel. Yes. Somebody sneaked that out of me and uh, started my career as a government regulator, working for the US EPA during the Clinton administration. Amazing. Okay, really interesting. And um, yes, for the benefit of you, the listener, um, Charles is just off the stage and I collared him immediately and said, here, I want to do a quick podcast with you because I found what you said to be very interesting. Now, The thing is, we're looking at the US, we're looking at renewables, and in the first day of conference, all I've heard is the problems that that the US is facing in delivering on its green energy ambitions. Now, what do you say to that? Well, I simply say we've been asleep at the wheel for for Mm -hmm. a number of years. Uh, I think that during the previous administration, it was maybe not apparent that renewables is not just a green energy thing. Mm -hmm. It's really starting to become a defining issue about global competitiveness Mm -hmm. and the competitive advantage of nations. So while we were thinking about green energy as as something that was a sideshow in terms of delivering clean and affordable and reliable energy to consumers, China built up a real dominance in a number of the key supply chains. Our policymaking environment, uh, and particularly our environment in which clean power thrives within the electrical grid, uh, suffered and lagged. And we have simply woken up now, and I think the frustration is, is that it's hard to do a 180. And that's essentially what is trying to be done. Mm -hmm. The the money's on its way. It's Mm -hmm. a bit gummed up in the system. It is. But there are a number of other obstacles that need to be addressed in order to make what is a really possible uh, transition that in which technology is no longer the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. It really comes down to markets financing a number of issues that, that the folks are exploring here in this conference today. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose uh, w- w- when I look back over the conversation and think about your, your presentation a moment ago, um, what, what, what needs to be done? I mean, the IRA, the um, Inflation Reduction Act um, has gone a long way to helping things in the US. Um, There's positivity there. There's a support structure. I'm hearing that Canada, towards the end of this year, is going to be bringing out something along the same lines. Mm -hmm. uh, But I don't really see the drivers in Canada being quite as significant as they are here in the US. Um, What needs to be done to ungum the system? 
Well, we have to go back and remember that the electric power system that we have in the U.S. and in most countries was really designed to take large centralized power stations, whether they're nuclear or coal or natural gas, Mm -hmm. and send those electrons into the city. Mm -hmm. So a huge interstate high transmission system. And that is not the way that renewables are going to be set up. I I think we're reaching a a limit. There will always be large utility-scale projects, and certainly in offshore, that a little more resembles that kind of centralized power station to to important load center. But we're moving now into a new phase in which the cost of solar, the cost of batteries, allows you to do much more within the distribution network. Mm -hmm. And so where the mindset has been, you know, one of the key constraints that anybody would tell you is transmission. Yeah. But that, that is not, that's not going to be fixed. There is a really difficult set of challenges about building new wires anywhere. Mm-hmm. I don't want high transmission in my backyard, and I'm sure yeah. that you don't either. So I think that the mindset really needs to shift mm-hmm. towards um, how can we harness distributed generation? How can we get around the problems associated with transmission? There needs to be more done, and, and there will be more done. Mm-hmm. But the build rate there is always going to be a constraint. And I think that the next, the next set of choices that we face are how to build more locally, how to use the distribution network, how to share intermittent power um, in virtual power plants. There's a lot of tech-enabled solutions for that. But the, the mindset, particularly in the regulatory mindset, is uh, a few years back. Mm-hmm. And, and this mm-hmm. is, I think, it's a more of a mental constraint mm-hmm. than a hardware constraint mm-hmm. at the moment. Yeah, there were people talking yesterday about transmission and complaining about, uh, you know, if, if you, if, when, when you're trying to go across different patches of land owned by different people, each one of them with their own legal team, it would appear a legal team, let's just call it a lawyer, um, demanding this, that, the next thing, throwing obstacles in the way. It's, it's, it's nigh on impossible ever to, it, it, they were saying it takes 10 years. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Well, the U.S. needs it a lot quicker than that. Yeah, and the U.S. needs it. We need a lot more power than than I think has been estimated. So Mm. when you look at what has happened so far, the renewables industry has been massively successful in now being the technology of choice for new demand. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's about nine out of every $10 in new capacity, which is flowing towards, say, wind and solar and other sources of renewable power. That's been a great success. But now the next step is, in order to decarbonize the power sector, you have to begin to eat into that existing capacity. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a very disruptive process. And that's another huge opportunity for the industry to grow and to to be able to sell more equipment and do Mm -hmm. more projects. But on the back of that, there are even more sources of potential demand. So when we think about hydrogen, Mm -hmm. uh, green hydrogen Mm -hmm. has to come from green electrons. Those electrons aren't there. Mm-hmm. Even things like adapting to climate change will have an effect on air conditioning loads. Mm-hmm. That's not being fully thought through. So when you really think about the transition to a more sustainable economy and a more sustainable energy economy, mm-hmm. it's really my view that that electrons become the backbone of that system. Mm-hmm. And that backbone is not currently in place, mm-hmm. and the sources of supply to feed into that backbone are not currently in place. Mm-hmm. So. We really need to change the level of, of expectation about what ambition needs to be on the enabling infrastructure, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. but also how bullish really people should be about how many projects need to get done, what the sources of supply really need to be to meet these increasingly higher levels of demand as we begin to chip into uh, traditional energy sources. And that's mostly about that replacement of, of 
electrons for hydrocarbons, which is, is, mm-hmm. the, is for me, the fundamental shift that we're talking about when we, when we think of the energy transition. And, and then we have a look at the nearshoring and onshoring. Um, well, you, you have to build out your manufacturing capacity here in the U.S. or neighboring nations. Um, it's, it seems like a, it's a terribly steep hill that needs to be climbed. And I don't know, maybe it's not fair. I, I don't see that those first paces are being taken yet. Well, on the, on the manufacturing side, this has probably been the brighter spot. So a lot of people who are trying to do projects are saying, look, interconnection queues are still too long. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, uh, I'm yes. trying to get um, lead times on transformers, mm-hmm. all of this. And so this is, when you, when you ask a system to suddenly up and jump and, <laughs> and do something new, of course mm-hmm. there's going to be those kinds of bottlenecks. But on the manufacturing side, this is actually, for me, one of the bright spots. So you've Mm -hmm. seen about $100 billion of new manufacturing commitments made in batteries alone since the announcement of the IRA. The other really positive thing about that is that's not going into California and the Northeast states. This doesn't follow the pattern of kind Mm -hmm. of the political rhetoric. Mm -hmm. That's going into Georgia. It's going into Tennessee. It's going into a lot of states that were recipients of manufacturing capacity when we had another Made in America push around automobiles when Japanese vehicles first came on the scene. So unfortunately, the the short answer is this takes time because Mm -hmm. those announcements happen, people are building those facilities, they come online, and I think it is um, frustrating, quite honestly, to to see that what should have been some kind of big bang is Mm -hmm. taking its way, the money's taking its way to work itself through the federal bureaucracy and state-level bureaucracies, Mm -hmm. and it takes a while for people to build these new manufacturing facilities. So there are some short-term headwinds, and and I think we have to keep in mind that the alignment of technology and policy and increasingly consumer choice is going in one direction. Mm And so the medium to long-term outlook is very bright, but I could perfectly understand people who are feeling that we need to go much faster right away. And it's not so long ago that the turbine manufacturers lost their shirts in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I know corporate memory is short, but those are the same people. (laughs) They have not forgotten. It's the churn that allows for corporate memory to be short. The same people are working, the same organizations, and they well recall having lost their shirts in the U.S. So, well, and it's never a, never a one-way bet. We haven't fixed the boom and bust cycle of, no. of, of the economy. No. Uh, and as we talked about in the conference earlier, we've been through a few waves of clean tech up and down. And mm-hmm. the, the fundamental question becomes, is this time different? Is, are we really at a different point in which we can see structural changes in the economy that will allow for those, let's say, dips to be mm-hmm. shallower, mm-hmm. because we'll never get rid of them entirely. Yeah. You can't, there's, yeah. uh, if you show me a market that I can invest in, it's always going to go up. I'd be really appreciative yeah. for the yeah. tip. But we do have to begin to find a way to color, let's say, mm-hmm. that up and down. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, for me, that's on the demand side, which is fossil fuels are fundamentally a source of uh, inflationary mm-hmm. tendencies in the economy. They are also a huge determinant of the boom and bust cycle. Yeah. And so this relative rate of return that investors can achieve by investing in oil and gas, which over the long term has actually been a very bad bet. So Mm -hmm. there's some research that I did with the International Energy Agency before leaving academia looking at the 10-year return profile of fossil fuels Mm -hmm. versus renewable power. Mm -hmm. And 
the story was really simple. Over the long term, both on a risk-adjusted basis and on an absolute basis, renewable power had outperformed. And I, I don't think a lot of people have an appreciation for, for that. And of course, that was a study that we did in 2020, right before the invasion of Ukraine. And so right. we've seen over the last 18 months a huge reversal in that story. And energy has been, conventional energy has been amongst the best performing uh, securities in, in the stock markets today. So we have short attention spans increasingly mm-hmm. in this mm-hmm. world. Uh, those of us that are parents and, and mm-hmm. know, know that about our mm-hmm. kids, know that about ourselves increasingly. Mm-hmm. But we do need to take a long-term view. And over, over time, uh, these growth companies have, yes, had difficult moments, but they have also um, been outperforming. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's simply the data. It's not, it's not a contention of mine. Yeah, well, yeah. the question is, going forward, what will be the case? And there are a lot of ways in which we can make uh, adjustments, let's say, in the, in the policy environment to make sure that we can, we can never get rid of the downs, but mm-hmm. we can make those a bit shallower and we can ensure that companies that have put their money where their mouth is mm-hmm. uh, are, not, are not left in the lurch. I do. We'll bring this to a close. Um, you know, you started your presentation talking about having attended a conference and spoken at a conference 20 years ago, which made me think, you know, back with IJ, um, we started writing about renewables as its own dedicated sector back in about 2003, 2004. So we actually carved it out for our news coverage and had it um, as an exclusive sector. We also hosted our first conference in, I think it was 2004, so about the same time that you were um, referring to. Um, We've remained heavily committed to it and we've been tracking it very, very closely over the years. Um, For you, what, what would you say, what, what's your message, not, not for the world, but for the U.S.? I mean, here we are sitting in New York. Um, we've heard everyone talking. We've heard, frankly, I've been rather disappointed that most of what I've heard yesterday and so far today has been stumbling blocks rather than achievements. And there's enthusiasm, no question about it. And there's aspiration, hope. But there's also an awful lot of, realism and concern for the future and the future delivery of what is being requested. What's your message for the market? Well, I think that the reason that you're, you're hearing some of that is that it, the folks that have been at this for a while, mm. including myself, have a high degree of conviction that we can get to a more affordable we can get to a cleaner and we can get to a safer energy system with renewable power serving the backbone of that, of that load. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes a bit frustrating if you see yeah. all of those stars in alignment. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't the rest of the world see it? Yeah, yeah. Why is the mainstream narrative still somehow that renewables are unaffordable? Yes. Why is it that, that somehow they're unreliable? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I mentioned in the talk is that there is, uh, this is the first innings of the real game Mm -hmm. in which actually incumbents are increasingly at risk, Mm -hmm. are really having to think through who's going to be the last man standing in Mm -hmm. terms of supply. And a lot of utilities, which should be the beneficiaries, but actually feel quite threatened by a shift of towards decentralized generation, particularly Mm -hmm. if consumers can begin to take more control Mm -hmm. of how they produce and store and use electricity. So... I think if there's frustration, it's that there's a disconnect between what the numbers are telling us 
and what we see as the headlines in in, in various newspapers. Yeah. And I just hope that, that facts will win and that we, mm-hmm. that we can continue to prove that the economics are actually going to be the major driver for this transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can need regulation and policy to continue to provide an enabling environment, but it always has. I mean, the choices mm-hmm. that we've made in energy to date this is not uh, something uh, uh, been a free market. These mm-hmm. are a lot of choices that we've made through mm-hmm. subsidy, through a lot of intentional choices to get where we are today. And I just hope that we can kind of close that gap between what is the great potential of the sector and how it's being represented more broadly. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Charles, I think that's a good uh, message to finish on. Um, thank you very much for joining us on InfraDig. It's been very interesting. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Excellent. And for the listener, as always, I hope you have found this to be anything but InfraDig. <laughs>